today on Ag News Daily. It starts out as a wear welding and sheet metal fabrication facility, um, and we have developed a screw press separator for several industries, but dairy being, you know, the primary egg. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is Mike Pearson here, co-host of the Ag News Daily Podcast, joined by co-host that we haven't heard from very much lately, Ms. Delaney Howell. Delaney, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I've been uh, traveling a lot. Yesterday had a shoot for This Week in Agribusiness. Had a lot of good stuff, though, that went on during the shoot. A lot of good stuff I learned about the world of agriculture. Such as? Drop some knowledge on us. That's why we're here. Well, we've had Dr. Chad Hart on the podcast here recently, so we were just discussing really the report he did back in June, how things have changed since then, looking at historical years such as 83, 93, and 95. And he said, we're really setting ourselves up now for kind of the perfect Goldilocks year, which would mirror 1995, where it was wet at the front end of the start, by the end of the season, back to normal crop condition. So we'll still see uh, yield drag is what he's estimating, but not maybe quite as drastically as we saw in 83 and 93. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, and, you know, that certainly seems to be kind of right along the lines of what the market is thinking as well as we watch this uh, little bit of a pullback beginning here. Uh, gosh, I suppose this is the first week in July, isn't it? It is. That it is. For first full week. Yeah, craziness. But we're also joined today by Madison Honkamp. Madison, how are you? I am doing great, Mike. How are you? Just splendiferous. Is that a real word? i just said it. I think you made it up. I, I I honestly don't know. I've heard it somewhere, so I didn't create it. I can't take uh, can't take credit for it. Okay, well. But I've got some news, Delaney. Let's hear it, Mike. Well, it's a story that we've been talking about for the past several years, dating all the way back to 2014. The lawsuit, the American Farmers Lawsuit Against Syngenta, which was settled last year for $1.51 billion. The expectation was those checks were going to start going out here in the second quarter of 2019, which, of course, we have now uh, finished. Uh, Checks haven't gone out. A federal judge invalidated the contingency fee agreements, basically the the decisions that decided how much the lawyers were going to get paid. And now all of the lawyers are suing each other, and it has gone back before a judge. And um, yeah, now they're saying uh, we'll get checks out to the plaintiffs in the case until mid-2020. And this is the case with the Viptera corn trade, is that correct, Mike? Yep, Viptera, Agrisher, Duracade, yep, the MIR-162 mm. lawsuit. Um, yeah, yeah, so uh, another hang-up there. Hopefully none of our listeners were banking on those checks <laughs> to uh, you know, keep the, the bottom line in place. Yeah, hopefully not. Hopefully you're not banking on, like, market facilitation program checks or any of those checks because government checks are slow. Well, but, you know, we're promised that first payment here in August, which is sneaking yeah. up on us. We, we still don't know how much. Right. But it's coming, something, we assume. It is, it is, yeah, yeah. Unless it doesn't, then it won't. (laughs) I was also talking to Dr. Hart about that, just kind of the confusion there with the way the USDA released the MFP payments. And so the way he understood it, this is, of course, changed now. We saw that announced last week. But originally, the way it was going to be set up was basically 
if you took prevent plant, you got coded one set of numbers or a set of codes through your FSA office. Then the other 23 products that were approved would be coded as another product or another number. And so then when you were entering this information into your FSA office, those prevent plant acres weren't originally going to be, of course, getting a check, even if you did plant one of those corn, soybean, silage products on top. Now he's saying that they have to basically rewrite some legislation or rewrite the way things are are coded because prevent plant acres can't technically pull from the CCC funds, which is where that MFP payment is coming from. Uh, oh, interesting. So he is thinking it's going to be a little bit of time before we see the USDA announce how that's actually going to transpire, what the formula is that they've created, and what the rate is that payments will be sent out to farmers at. What a nightmare. So let's, yeah. let me make sure I've got this straight because that mm-hmm. was a lot of bureaucratic nonsense. Yep, it was. Effectively, the MFP payment, which is paid for out of the CCC, was going to go to anybody who planted a crop, uh, planted right. those seeds on acres they had intended to be planted on. But yep. if they took prevent plant, the CCC cannot send them a check. Correct. But now we know that if you took prevent plant and you decide later on to plant a cover crop, you will get a payment, but it will be a smaller amount than those 23 crops approved on the original MFP list. Okay. All right. I know it's a lot to unpack. It's a lot to unpack. And I'm going to go ahead and just let you continue to bird dog this issue, Delaney. Okay. You you follow it. I like it. it. I like following it. I'm okay with it. All right. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. And since we're talking about uh, crop conditions and all that stuff, we've got the crop progress and conditions report that came out yesterday. Looks like we're 98% corn emerged over those 18 states selected that get surveyed. So that sounds pretty good. Um, For corn conditions, they're, you know, comparable to last week's numbers, but really over the past couple of years average, we are definitely seeing crop conditions be a lot worse. And I think the key here is variability. That word is getting thrown around a lot in the media with Dr. Hart today, just the variability of corn and soybean conditions across the nation is pretty evident. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, what we see here at the final harvest. It is. And, you know, it's not just across the country. It can be across a road. You know, there are right. fields on the left side that are tasseled and, and growing like crazy and looking good and ankle high corn on the other side of the road. It is a yep. truly crazy year. That wetness from what, April 27th through June 1st mm-hmm. uh, created some definite haves and have nots out mm-hmm. here in the countryside. Absolutely. Madison, what are you seeing down there in your neck of the woods? Are you seeing the same thing? Yeah, kind of. It's, it. yeah, it's basically what Mike said. Like, one side of the road will be perfectly fine, like, where it should be, and then the other side is barely ankle high or even knee high, really. Yeah, well, it's going to be interesting to see how this crop year shakes out, so that's for sure. Yes, it definitely will be. Madison, what kind of news are you looking at today? Um, Well, I just have one quick article coming out of Reuters. It is about how U.S. refiners are urging the EPA to keep biofuel waiver requests secret from the USDA. 
Um, so a law firm representing a small U.S. refineries has urged the Environmental, environmental Protection, Protection Agency to keep refineries' applications for waivers from the nation's biofuel policy secret from the Department of Agriculture, arguing that the petitions include confidential business information. Um, basically, this request was made by Perkins Coy, I believe is how he's pronounced the last name, in a letter to the EPA actually yesterday. Um, and this is adding to the mounting pressure from representatives of the refining industry for the Trump administration to box the USDA out of controversial waiver, waiver programs. Um, this program then can exempt these small refiners in financial turmoil from their responsibility to blend ethanol into gasoline under the renewable fuel standard. Um, and these waivers can then end up saving them tens of millions of dollars, but are broadly opposed by the corn industry, obviously because it is having them cut out that ethanol. Um, but basically, the EPA is saying they don't want the USDA to share confidential information of, with these refineries um, with different players in the agricultural community. Yeah, I was looking at that story, and it certainly sounds as though the oil industry is concerned that if mm -hmm. USDA gets its hand on any of this data, that uh, since we do know that uh, Secretary Purdue has been very opposed to the tripling of EPA um, SRE waivers mm -hmm. here over the past two years, that you know maybe that data could leak out and be used against those refiners, which we do know from past disclosures aren't always small, troubled refiners. Some of them tend to be mm -hmm. the largest players mm -hmm. in the petroleum industry. You know, I was talking to somebody about this the other day because they were, they were like, can you explain what these SRE waivers are? And I, it raises a point in my mind, and it's something I have considered before, but just maybe you've never searched for clarification. Maybe, Mike, you know it a little better than I do. But when they declare them a small refiner and they give them this hardship waiver, is it dependent upon that specific location, such as yeah. like BP has, you know, multiple locations. So is that one location considered one separate refiner or do they as a whole company consider them a refiner? Do you get what I'm asking? I do. And so I had a conversation with our good friend, Dr. Scott Irwin, about this very issue. And it was probably 18 months ago when we first started talking about it. So listeners, this is 18 month old information that has been rattling around in my head. So I don't take it as gospel. But yes, I believe that was how these ExxonMobil, for example, was able to get some of their smaller refiners, SREs, is they were looking at it on the individual basis. Uh, PES out of Philadelphia was one of those that is truly a smaller refinery, and as well as some of the, uh, what do you call not affiliates, but uh, associated. Yeah, yeah, probably, of uh, the big dogs. They were able to look at them as individual units rather than as parts of a whole, and that was the decision or, or the, the basis of the EPA's decision. Okay. I guess that makes a little bit more sense. Mm -hmm. I think that's the only way they'd be able to get them through. Yeah, I think so, too. That's, why I, I, that's what I assumed was to be true, but I uh, wasn't for sure on that. Yeah, and listeners, again, don't take it as gospel. Yeah, we don't probably take a whole lot you say as gospel. <laughs> probably, probably very wise. Yes, probably very wise. Yeah. Okay, I've got uh, one final piece of news because I know when I read it, I was just 
thinking, what the heck, in my head. But, of course, climate change has been an issue here in the news the past couple of weeks. We saw Representative Ocasio-Cortez introduce the Green New Deal, which obviously really upset agriculture. Well, she's putting forth another uh, piece of legislation here to tackle climate change. She's introducing another resolution and is basically declaring climate change to be a national emergency in this piece of legislation and calling for massive scale mobilization to halt, reserve, or excuse me, halt, reverse, and address its consequences and causes. I just thought it was a little crazy that she was trying to declare climate change a national emergency. Well, you know, she's not the only one to kind of use that sort of verbiage. We've heard that from a lot of folks on uh, usually the left side of the political spectrum. You know, they we need to mobilize to fight climate change like we fought World War II and so forth and so on. And, um, you know, it's just, I guess, one possible way to raise awareness, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. I'm trying to be super charitable. I don't know. It's just weird that she's saying (laughs) it's weird that she's saying it's a national emergency. I think. I don't know. What what would you think though, man? Like global? Yeah. Like it's international. Not really. (laughs) It's not just affecting the United States. Well, but she doesn't have any power, you know, over those other places. Yeah, that's true. Um Well, I just have one other story, and it is truly global, or at least we're talking about other places in the globe with this story, and that is armyworm continues to spread in China. The fall armyworm has now been found in the northwestern province of Gansu, and uh, they say that, uh, you know, this now puts it at 20 provinces and regions in China since it was first reported in early January. So the armyworm continues to be a concern for that Chinese corn crop. Uh, you know, not, not enough of a concern that you know we got any bitters in, in our country here on it. But um, these armyworms, apparently they're just absolutely going nuts over there. Happy as uh, armyworms and corn, I suppose. <laughs> they're just feeding away. They are. They are. They're they're feeding like crazy. And uh, Beijing said they're going to spend about $73 million for armyworm prevention, and they're urging these kind of local authorities to get out there and make some investments in pesticides, but it sounds like it's too little too late, at least for this season's crop. So they've got armyworms, they've got African swine fever, they're just having problems yeah. galore. Yeah, not a not an ideal situation to be uh, in Chinese agriculture, I think. No, I don't think so. Although they do get government subsidies, or I don't know. They're a communist government, so I guess if they get affected, then their producers still get paid out. Mm, maybe, probably. Isn't that how know. it's... I think that's how it's set up. Probably. I know they've got some inflated prices, or they, they have in the past, but yeah. Yeah, well... Well, I'm all out of news. What uh, do you ladies have anything else for us? I really don't. I thought it was a pretty slow news day today. It yeah, it was very slow today, but it was not slow in the markets. In particular, the livestock markets were on fire today. Um, this pig is on fire, right? I don't right? think that's no good. Try Hunger though. game still cool. Mm. Um, no. Mm. No. Well, what do you say? Should we jump into the markets and see what happened before we get to our hashtag Tech Tuesday discussion? Let's do it. 
All right, folks, and our markets, remember, are brought to us by our good friends at the Zaner Group. We want you to give us a call. We want to help you manage your marketing risk. A lot of volatility out there today, and uh, volatility can create some opportunities. So give us a shout. You can reach us at Zaner at 312-277-0050, or, of course, visit us on the web at Zaner, Z-A-N-E-R.com. Tell them you heard it on Ag News Daily. Looking at the markets today, mixed trade in the grains. Uh, September corn was down seven cents at four thirty-two and a half. The December contract down six and a half to close the day at four thirty-seven and a quarter. Soybeans, a little bit of green on the screen today. The August was up seven cents at eight eighty-six even, with November up six and a half to finish at nine oh four and a quarter. Looking down at Chicago wheat, the SEP contract was down eight and a quarter at five oh two and three quarters, with the December down seven and a quarter, finished the day at five fifteen and a half. Jumping over to the world of livestock, as I mentioned, we got buyers lined up here in uh, really all the complexes in live cattle. The August contract was up $1.9750 to close at 108.12.5. The October up $1.90, finished at 109.30. In feeder cattle, the August contract up $3.97.5, finished the day at 142.8750. September up $4.37.5 to close at one forty three twelve and a half. And in lean hogs, the August contract limit up, up the daily $3 trading limit to close at seventy nine oh seven fifty. And October also limit up on the day, finished at $71 even. Jumping over to the world of dairy in the July contract, we were up a nickel to finish at seventeen thirty eight. And August class three milk unchanged on the day, wrapped this up. At 1783. Without further ado, let's jump into our hashtag Tech Tuesday discussion. Well, for today's Tech Tuesday interview, we've got a great conversation coming up here with Aaron Cools, who is the CEO and co founder of All Ins Enterprises. Aaron, first of all, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So, give us the 10,000-foot view, what is All-Ins Enterprises? Well, it, was, it, it starts out as a wear welding and sheet metal fabrication facility, um, and we have developed a screw press separator for several industries, but dairy being, you know, the primary egg um, focus on the separator itself. It's for dewatering, and we can pretty much dewater just about anything depending on your goals. So when you talk dewatering, what does that mean? Or why why would anybody dewater something? Well, the a lot of what it goes into in dairy is the solids are separated from the water to use again as what they call green bedding or in some cases compost bedding. And the difference between compost bedding and green bedding is green bedding comes right off the separator and it's used to bed the cows. And then compost bedding actually goes through a drying process after that before it beds the cattle. Huh. Okay. So Mike and I obviously aren't, aren't dairy folks. Um, but explain to us then why do you, why would you need something like a screw press separator? Can you not just do this, I guess, at home, leave it in a compost pile and let it do it itself? Well, it's based on the sheer quantity of, of you know, manure that is created by the farms, the dairies, and the fact that there's not a lot of holding area for it. And generally, they like to bed their cattle between once every day or to every other day, sometimes even every third day. So you need a constant supply, and doing a compost pile would be, it would take too long. 
Gotcha. So let's talk. A, oh, excuse me. Let's talk a little bit about how the screw press operates into a workflow at a dairy. So I've got my what typically a, a water flush system carrying the bedding down, and then it automatically runs through a screw press. Help us put it into perspective how a farm would would utilize something like this. Well, there's a couple different scenarios, if you will, that a lot of time, a lot of cases, there's a digester involved. So the manure actually flows to the digester or gets pumped to the digester. And then from the digester, it goes to a pit or holding pit that would then pump into the separator, which would then su separate the solids from the liquids. The liquids would go then into a lagoon or a, um, a flush pit, so to speak, where they'll actually flush their barns with the cleaner water. And then there's another option where they can pump directly from a holding pit. Some have pits beneath the barn, so they would pit, pump from the barn to the to the uh, separator directly. And then there's another one where they actually will use a holding tank to pump to the holding tank and then gravity feed the separators. All different scenarios that we've worked with. Interesting. So if I am using one of those scenarios, how much time is required for the screw press to dewater the future bedding enough to utilize it? Well, like, like I said, there's, there's different types. There's green bedding and there's compost bedding. And once it gets through the digester or we can even go, the digester is a longer process for sure. And I don't know the exact on it. And I think it varies based on, you know, time in the, the digester and so forth. But um, to come from a pit to a separator, it's minutes. And then the separation process takes minutes. Um, it goes into the separator and the auger pushes the solids through and the, the screens allow the water to escape. And is this type of setup pretty normal for a dairy? And I guess also what sizes of dairies have to utilize something like a screw press separator? Well, I don't think that there's any dairy that has to. It depends on what your goals are. If your goals are to bed with your um, solids, then you would have a separator Most in most cases. There's other types of machines out there, but they're less efficient, generally speaking. Um, so this is, this is something that you would use. If you'd want a solid matter to, to bed your cows with, you would want a separator. Um, we have a application. I think there's, there's, I think all applications are possible. Um, it just takes the right thought process to do so. We have one that's installed in a, in a farm that has 300 head that they milk. Um, and we have one that's in, going into a, a, a farm with 6,200. So there's, it's varying from sizes. And then you could even go to the point where smaller dairies could potentially get kind of a co-op situation where they would could have one separator and share it amongst farms. You could, that's something we've talked about in the past as well. So I don't think it's, size of the farm really matters. Fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about what you have developed specifically, your MF10 screw press. What separates it from, uh, from the competition? Well, we've done some different things and that probably are, it's, it's very similar looking to the others. Um, ours is made out of stainless steel sheet metal, which allows us to enlarge or small, get or make our machine smaller rather quickly. Um, it's just a matter of basically designing it a little bit differently. We uh, also do something that's 
most in the industry have what they call a close tolerance between the screen and, and screw or auger. We have a zero tolerance. So our screens actually ride on the auger, which clean the screens better, which allows the water to evacuate quicker. Um, that's kind of the basics. We've also taken some of the less desirable maintenance factors of the other manufacturers and kind of improved on that. So now when you say zero tolerance, it sounds, you know, I hear that. I hear screenwriting on auger. I think we're going to be adding uh, some more wear to that screen. Is, is that a concern? Wear on, wear on these machines are inevitable. Okay. Whether it's close tolerance or zero tolerance, yep. Gotcha, gotcha. So when you think about uh, what kind of regular ongoing maintenance is required, obviously screen replacement is is a part of it. And mm -hmm. what kind of, what I guess is required from a farmer's perspective to keep everything running like it should? Well, the best thing that we can, uh, we can suggest to the farmer is our screens are adjustable as well. So we, we well, we have actually four four smaller sections inside that ride on the auger as opposed to generally one or two that slide over the auger. Ours can be taken out from the side and, and replaced and maintained rather quickly. But the best thing that we can suggest is to actually rotate those screens. And that sounds funny because it sounds like you're rotating tires, but you're really not. You're rotating the screen. So these four pieces that are in there are universal. So I can put them in any one of those positions on, on the screw or on the auger, and that gives them a longer life. Hmm. So, Aaron, I have a, I guess a basic question or a question we should have asked earlier in the conversation, but how does a welding and sheet metal company develop an idea for something like a screw press separator for the dairy industry? Well, our, our machine is fully welded. It's a fully welded frame as opposed to most that are cast and so forth in the industry. But I, I, can, I can go back a little further and we actually started looking into building a separator in 2006. And we done some testing along the way. And we just, found, we just found that using the sheet metal in the welding process, which is our background, helps that machine to work better. It gives it more flexibility, more, um, not only from design, but from actual in-process, the flexibility actually allows it to work a little more consistently. Very cool. Aaron, it's so neat to see manufacturing companies up in rural America creating products that are needed in rural America. If we've got listeners in the dairy industry or anybody else who needs to be concerned with dewatering, how can they get a hold of you? Well, we can, we can be contacted on our website at www dot al-ins.com. They can call me at 920-238-5460 or email aaron.kuhls at al-ins.com. Fantastic. Aaron, thanks again for taking the time to chat with us today. You betcha. Anytime. Thank you. Well, big thanks to Aaron for taking time out of his day to, to kind of walk us through not just what they're doing, but also what the screw press is used for in the dairy world. Yeah, I, I feel like I learned something today, Delaney. I think I definitely learned something today too, Mike. That's always a fun feeling. It's good to get smarter because as, as uh, G.I. Joe taught us, knowing is half the battle, Delaney Howell. 
Oh, that's a new one. Referencing G.I. <laughs> Joe here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if our listeners want to know more, where can they go to do such a thing? Well, they can find us on Facebook and on Twitter and Instagram, thanks to Madison at Ag News Daily, or they can connect with us online at our website, globalagnetwork.com slash Ag News Daily. Madison, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.